we're going to do in this teaching is to look at how the church lost track of this teaching that we're calling historic premillennialism and created another teaching that came to be known as amillennialism. And what were the, the influences uh, that caused this to happen? Most people today uh, are amillennial in their belief system. Well, how did this take place? First of all, I want to start by just uh, reading a few scriptures that reflect the teaching of Jesus as recorded by the apostles. First of all, do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. What Jesus is saying is that the law and the prophets are together moving in the same direction, promising to us that God must fulfill all of his desires and that Jesus came for the very purpose of doing this. The role of the prophets, okay, the old covenant prophets, is to tell us that God has a plan to bring the whole earth out of lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. And so God will not give up until the earth has become like it originally was intended to be. So that the prophets are telling us that this will happen and they're giving us some clues about how this will happen. And the law and the prophets are together. They're, they're equal pieces, shall we say, of God's covenant. All right, now let's go to Matthew 26 and verse 29. I tell you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. What Jesus seems to be saying here is that he is coming back and will drink wine on the earth with some of his disciples. Now that is a curious statement, yet the disciples, the apostles of the church, felt the need to convey that on to us so that we would understand that Jesus is coming back and is literally going to have a meal with his disciples when he does come back. We remember that when Jesus was raised from the dead, he did eat food in the presence of his disciples. So 
the resurrection body is something other than just our souls going to heaven. There's something that God decreed and declared and showed to his disciples, and that was important for him to do. That was important uh, for him to show them. And then the third passage, Matthew 23, 37 to 39. Matthew 23, 37 to 39. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And what this passage seems to be saying is that Jesus is coming back, and he's coming back to Jerusalem. That now the people of Jerusalem are rejecting him. But when he comes back the second time, they are going to have a change of heart, a change of attitude. And they are going to say, Blessed be he, Yeshua HaMashiach, who comes in the name of the Lord. So things are going to change during the second coming of Christ. Now, when we move through the period of the Apostolic Fathers and come to the fourth century, something happened that was going to change the conditions in which the church existed and the gospel was being preached. And that thing was the Edict of Milan in 313. The emperors, co-emperors Licinius and Constantine decreed in the Edict of Milan that Christians would have their belongings restored to them and that Christianity would have maybe even something of a favored status in the Roman Empire. It became a good thing uh, to be a Christian. It was a, it was a positive thing, not a negative thing. And so you could be prosperous and be a Christian now from, from that point on. Well, the embarrassing thing about that was that there were certain passages in the Bible that um, made it hard for that generation of Christians. And these were the passages in the prophets that talked about uh, a, a Messiah coming who would overcome the emperors of this world, specifically the Roman Empire. You'll read that in the prophet Daniel. And uh, he was going to crush the Roman Empire under his feet, and only his empire would remain. His kingdom would remain. And it would be forever. It would be a kingdom that lasts forever. So, uh, Christians in the Roman Empire in the 4th century weren't real excited about reading that particular verse. 
in fact, they needed to find a way to reinterpret these ancient prophecies about the coming of the kingdom when they were so explicit about the empires of this world, especially the Roman Empire. So they're going to find a way to reinterpret all of these things. Then that's the first thing. And then the second thing, the Greeks were interested in the issue of immortality. The immortality of the soul was a pop popular subject. Uh, everybody was talking about this. There were some emperors and empresses who actually wanted to uh, make sure that the Senate proclaimed them gods and goddesses because that would relieve their concern about what happened to them after they died. And if the Senate would just proclaim them gods and goddesses, then that would relieve that whole issue for them. Well, that tells you that this was uh, a concern for a great many other people as well. Well, one of the oldest uh, principles of evangelism, scratch where people itch. And if this was the, the concern of the Greco-Roman world, which it was, then they're going to emphasize the immortality of the soul, which is a very genuine piece of the gospel of the kingdom. But this other piece, which is Jesus coming back and bringing an earthly kingdom, which really was a geopolitical kingdom on earth that would last forever and crush these other kingdoms, well, that part of it was going to be sort of swept off the table. Let it fall to the ground. We're just going to deal with the immortality of the soul, which is a genuine piece of the gospel of the kingdom. But now they're going to start treating that as though it were the whole thing. Uh, then the third uh, issue of the period was um, that the intellectual world were... Uh, we're into philosophy. Philosophy was a big subject to the Greco-Roman world. And uh, the Romans took the Greek philosophers um, and at least gave them lip service. A lot of it was uh, just lip service. But the intellectuals really studied the philosophers. And one of the, the greatest philosophers of them all was Plato. Plato was pointing out in his philosophy that everything that you see in this world is rotting. It's disappearing. It's dying. It's changing. But the spirit realm is different. The spirit realm is eternal. It is unchanging. It is uh, beautiful and full of perfection. Now, it was very, very difficult for any intellectuals of that ilk to believe that God wanted to perfect the creation or that he had a redemptive plan for this creation. Instead, what they preferred to believe was that we were just going to get out of this cre creation and go to heaven. And that's what the gospel of the kingdom became. Instead of Jesus coming back here and redeeming the earth and bringing the creation back to uh its original intention uh, of God, um, heaven is going to be just the place where you go after you die. 
And so now we've got um, teachers that are doing something other than just trying to preserve the teaching of Jesus. What they're doing now uh, in the, the, the fourth century and fifth century is they're trying to fit the gospel into a Greco-Roman culture to win the whole culture to Christ. And, um, you know, I believe this was a worthy goal. Um, it started really in earnest with a man named Origen. Uh, Origen lived in Alexandria, which was one of the main cities in the ancient world that was trying to introduce Greek culture to everybody. It was a totally Greek city. And Origen spent the first years of his life in Alexandria. And so his whole goal was to present the gospel in a way that would be acceptable to Greek people, Greeks Hellenized people. And the way he found to do that was to take the Bible and allegorize it. In other words, everything in the scriptures became a spiritual principle, a spiritual allegory. A spiritual, it became a picture of the spiritual life. And uh, one of the things, uh, I'm not sure that this really started with origin, but it's an example of what was happening was that the church now was to become spiritual Israel. So all the stuff that came through Israel is now going to be reinterpreted as an allegory of the spiritual life. And Origen was really, really big on this. After him, in the fourth century, came Augustine. Augustine was the theologian uh, for the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, really, the Roman Catholic Church relied on Augustine more than anybody else. And Augustine was very, very influential for even the Great Reformation. So Augustine was influenced by this whole process of, of, of reducing everything to a spiritual principle. And so one of the things that Augustine and those who followed him said is that there is no such thing as the millennial reign of Christ on earth. Instead, the millennium is just an allegory for the church. So not only is the church spiritual Israel, but the millennial reign of Christ is just the church and the church's present day existence on the earth. We are the kingdom of God. The church is the kingdom of God. We are not moving towards Jesus coming back and bringing the kingdom of God. We're the church and that's all there is. And so this became known as amillennialism because it reinterpreted the, the millennium as as if it were just a parable of the spiritual life, the, the way that we walk out the kingdom of God in Christ. Um, also, I have to say that the teaching that the, the, the church is spiritual Israel is a different teaching than what the Apostle Paul taught. He taught that 
the church is grafted into Israel, well, that's different from saying the church is spiritual Israel. It's two different teachings. Because under the later teaching, you're getting rid of Israel. In fact, that opened the door for the, for the Roman Catholic Church to be downright anti-Semitic and was anti-Semitic all during the Middle Ages and on into uh, the, the time of the Reformation. So, by the original biblical teaching, if we are grafted into Israel, we are appropriating all the promises of God that were for Israel, for the Gentile world, because of the death of Jesus, taking those things and opening them all for us. It's like Jesus taking a gigantic treasure chest that really belongs to Israel, but then opening it up so that we can have those things too. Uh, but it does not get rid of the role of Israel in its own right. So that's an important difference that began to happen with uh, the 4th, 5th, 6th century. But now let me go back to those scriptures that we started with. Jesus says, not one iota of the prophets or the law are going to fall away until all is accomplished. Well, um, he seems to be emphasizing, even down to the last detail, that we need to take the prophets very, very seriously, the Old Covenant prophets. And um, it seems to me that in the fourth century, uh, people began to get away from that. It seems to me that uh, it makes hash of everything Jesus said about the law and the prophets here in the Sermon on the Mount. Or how about coming back to drink wine in the kingdom where he's promising that it's going to be sort of like the Last Supper, and uh, except that it's, it's with the resurrected body, and he's going to be able to have this banquet, but it's going to be on earth, and it's, it's going to be in his resurrected body. Uh, it seems to be it's, it's, it's not just a spiritual allegory here. Or his words about Jerusalem and how you reject me now, but you're going to receive me when I come back. And this is not an allegory of the spiritual life. This is him actually coming back and doing stuff when he comes back. Uh, and so it, it seems to me that uh, the teachers from here on are starting to change the gospel. You see, they're changing the gospel so that it would fit into this Greco-Roman world better than if it had just stayed the same. And in fact, uh, the change was a more or less permanent change, and most Christians did become amillennial at that point and dropped this whole uh, line of teaching that is in the teaching of Christ himself.
Well, what I want to ask you is a simple question. Did God change his heart, his hopes, his promises? Did he change the new covenant? Or did we allow certain things to be dropped off that were no longer convenient for us, but that are still just as true as they ever were? So let me just leave that question in your mind between now and our next teaching.